Well, this morning we are in Romans 4. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Paul is presenting his great theological thesis in a letter. And he's using chapter 4 as a great Old Testament illustration. Hear now the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And then to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it, it is the inheritance of the law who to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the inherit of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, 
that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, may you help us. May you give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit to hear and to understand and to live the word that you've given us. Father, we pray that you would anoint these lips of clay, that they would be used of you to speak the truth, and that you would anoint these hearts of clay that they would hear and turn and walk with you. In Christ's name, amen. In 1947, a rumor spread that the Ford Motor Company would give a Ford automobile in exchange for every copper penny dated 1943. The rumor spread so fast that it almost buried the switchboard at Ford Motor Company. Even the U.S. Mint was jammed with calls about the rumor. Turned out, it was a hoax. You see, during World War II, the U.S. Mint made pennies out of steel zinc rather than copper. And I was a young coin collector when I was a little boy, and somewhere I have some of those steel cents laying around. If you call up the U.S. Mint and ask them a question and say, how many copper pennies were made in 1943, they will tell you not a single one. However, there was about a billion steel pennies made that year. 
There has been a rumor abroad in the human race for centuries that entrance into heaven can be obtained by good behavior. But it's not true. It's a devilish hoax. The fact is, there is no human performance on earth that is acceptable in heaven. All of our good deeds are tainted by sin. The only righteousness that gains entrance into heaven is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. Can I get an amen? Amen. Your eternal destiny depends on you understanding and personally believing the truth that Paul is illustrating in Romans 4. That we are justified or declared righteous by faith alone. We are not justified by works. We are not justified by moral behavior, but rather by faith in the God who credits righteousness to the ungodly apart from works. The blessing is not based on religious rituals. It is not based on keeping the law like anybody could. It only serves to condemn us, actually. Paul shows that saving faith is rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It contributes to God's glory. And it relies on God's power. Paul is arguing that Abraham, who the Jews rightly extol as the father of their faith, was justified by faith alone, not by being circumcised, not by keeping the law. And as such, Abraham is not only the father of the faithful Jews, he is the father of Christians. That is why the little kids sang in Sunday school, Father Abraham and many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord left foot, Father Abraham. Remember? Paul tells us now, today, this morning, that Abraham's faith is an example of, for us all. So righteousness comes by grace. Grace is a gift, but it comes through faith. Faith is a gift. It doesn't come by human performance. And in your mind, just 
put an asterisk there. So at the end, we talk about this, we loop this around. Because there's something I have to say which is very important in that regard. The law brings wrath. If you were trying to get into heaven by being a good person, it would only bring you wrath. So, remember, being good is just a fable. I just can't, because I'm not able, saying somebody back in the 80s. It depends on faith. Now, if it depended on works, God would owe us salvation. Like when you work for someone, right? He doesn't come up and say at the end of the week, I want to give you this check as a gift for the 40 hours of back-breaking labor. No, you're owed that. And even the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will ensure that you get that for your labor. But this is no thing that God doesn't owe us. He doesn't owe us anything, and he certainly doesn't owe us salvation. He says it's by faith, which preserves the fact that the whole thing, salvation in its entirety, is the gift of God that he gives. And he's sovereign in dispensing that gift. He doesn't give it to everyone. We don't know why. But he is sovereign in that. But everyone he wants to give it to will have it. And they will be kept and they will be brought to heaven one day. Not one of his people will be lost. Isn't that great if you've been, you embarked on the trail here of the Christian life and true faith that you're going to make it. Nothing's going to trip you up. God's going to bring you through. Amen. So our salvation is not owed to us. It's not a wage. And he refers to adherence of the law. He's referring to believing Jews. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles get saved the exact same way. By grace through faith. Now, why this grace, this faith, brings us into contact with what Jesus did and his righteousness? Like last week, it brings us into contact with expiation, the removal of our sin, and propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, and it also imputes to us righteousness. So when God looks down on the Christian, he sees a righteous person. And when we say righteous, we want to think rightly related to God. Because the whole 
matter of life is, how can I be rightly related to God? That is the big question of life. You don't see that on the news. ABC News reporting, how can you be rightly related to God? Here is Pastor John MacArthur on that issue. They don't do that. They don't care. They suppress that. They suppress the truth. So whether you came from a religious background and your grandma went to church every Sunday, or you came from a pagan background and nobody in your house went to church, we all get saved the same way, by grace, through faith, in Christ. Amen. So Paul says, what does the scripture say? Isn't that interesting? Paul says that. What does the word of God say? He doesn't say, what does the council say? Or what does the synod say? Or what does the theologian say? Or what does the confession say? As precious as many of those things are, it all comes down to the word of God. Amen? Add fontes to the sources. The word of God is our source. Amen? The Word of God discloses God to us. And if you want to believe God, you believe His Word. And if if you're in His Word, if His Word is in you, you're living right. If His Word is not in you and you don't bleed that way, if I cut you, would you bleed Bible? Is there a verse on your tongue? Is there a, a verse in your heart? I hope so. So righteousness does not come by human performance. Um, And you know, we got this one issue that we have to talk about this morning. And that is this. It's not the one who believes in God. You might get excited and say, yeah, I was just talking to a guy and he believes in God. Don't get too excited because somebody who believes in God is only admitting the obvious. Right? Believing in God will not get you into heaven. Believing God may get you into heaven. There's a difference between believing in God, like believing historically that God exists, or actually believing what he says. Those are two different things. People are home right now, sitting around, lounging around, right, with Pastor Pillow and Sister Sheets at the Bedside Baptist Church, saying, I'm all set. I believe in God. And they're as lost as anything. They're as lost as the drug dealer on the street. Believing in God The demons believe in God. They're not saved. If we don't believe God, guess what? There's a consequence and a logical inference or deduction, actually. If we don't believe God... We are calling God a liar. 
If I said to you, the stop sign on Nichols Street is red, but there is some graffiti at the bottom with the letters XYZ there, and you looked at me and said, oh, but you didn't believe what I said, and I said, no, 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 it's true, you would say, hmm, I don't believe him, he's a liar. And so, if you don't believe God, if your family doesn't believe God, if your relatives, husband, wife, anybody that you know, neighbors, don't believe God, they're calling God a liar. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book about Jesus called Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or what we say, he's the Lord of all. Amen? Now, think about this. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's justified before he dies. If you're a Christian this morning, you're justified now, right now, and you'll never be more justified. Think about it. If it wasn't this way, then how much righteousness would be enough? How much would be enough to get you into heaven? What do you have to do? Do I have to go to Jerusalem? Do I have to go to church every day? Do I have to make meals for the priest? Do I have to walk on my knees, on broken glass? What do I have to do? And think about this. You know it from your own life. As you extrapolate to the day you die, whenever that is, when you get to the day you die, you're still going to have some degree of sin clinging to you, aren't you? You know that nowhere in your life will you be sinlessly perfect. So if you're not justified in this life and you die with sin, you're on your way to damnation. We'll always have sin clinging to us until we get to heaven. Right? When a person believes in Christ and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him, the transfer of the merit of Jesus Christ to the account of the believer is a real transfer. You go to the spiritual bank, hit the button, it doesn't say you're bankrupt, it says you got money in your account. Even though you're a sinner. Amen? God looks at that person who has trusted in Christ. He sees the unrighteous person covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness of Jesus Christ is perfect and it's imputed to every believer by divine declaration. God counts it as righteousness. Now, Number two, righteousness is for everyone who truly believes. 
Jonathan Edwards said this, In the act of justification, God has no regard to anything in the person justified or any goodness in him, but that immediately before this act, God beholds him only as an ungodly creature. Is moral goodness then immaterial? There's a certain wing of the Christian church that says, how can a sinner be counted righteous? It's a fiction. It can't be. It's not right. So what they say is this. That at the beginning... They have to do good stuff, good acts, good deeds. And by the time they die, if there's enough good deeds done, then they'll go to heaven. But nobody actually knows until that day. Now, there's also a fail-safe. If there's not enough good deeds by the time they get to heaven, then there's a big treasure box full of good deeds. I'll call it a treasure box. It's called the treasury of merit. And in that box is deeds that other people didn't need. Let's say you needed a thousand good deeds to get into heaven and you had 1,200. Two of those hundred would go into the box. And what happens is that merit that's in the box could be applied to your account after you die while you're waiting in purgatory, in the on-deck circle, waiting to get up. And when the saints on earth have masses for you, some of that merit can be taken from the box and put on your account, and then maybe at some point you can get out. I keep thinking of the song as I'm sitting here, you'll never get to heaven if you break my heart. (laughs) How can the ungodly be righteous? Not through a legal fiction, but by a legal declaration. God declares it so and he can because he's God. And he doesn't do it in some artificial absurd manner. No, he's giving you the gift from Christ who he sent as a gift to give us the gift of righteousness take away our sin, and to give us his righteousness. So in God's court, somebody who is in Christ is saved, justified, and justified right now. You know? So that you don't have to worry that, you know, when you're, you get hit by a car, you were, you know, doing something bad or something, you know? 
I don't know, whatever you were doing. You got hit by a car and you died. You know, that one sin, you know. We always think that way, don't we? That, oh, don't do anything that, you, you know, that you'd want to be caught dead doing, right? You know, that kind of thing. God forgives, he forgets, and he obliterates our unrighteousness. And he saves us, he is saving us, and he will save us. Salvation has past, its present, and its future. Amen? But we have an advanced verdict. You already know what the verdict is. Now, let's drop a shoe that Paul did not drop in Romans 4, but James certainly dropped it. And he said this. He asked the question, James 2.21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Wait a minute. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Here I am pounding that we are justified by faith. And James goes and says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac up on the altar. Is there a contradiction in the word that you believe? No, there isn't. Martin Luther, though, got really messed up about the whole thing. He thought there was. He didn't want James to be in the canon. If he had his way, he would have cut it out. But I think later on in life, he may have come to terms with the issue. The meaning of justification in James slightly shifts. It's still a legal de declaration. Yet, James's concern is not the basis of the declaration, but it's proof. By good deeds, we demonstrate that we have faith. So good works are not the basis of justification, but they prove that your faith is real and not fake. So that's the problem we all have. We live our lives, we go home, we live this week, and maybe somewhere in the week we sin a lot. Something happens. We start yelling at somebody. Start yelling at your spouse and all this filthy words come out of your mouth. And your little kid comes up and rebukes you and says, Daddy, I can't believe you ever kissed your mother with that mouth. Where did all that come from? All that crud came up from the indwelling sin of your heart. And then at some point after the fight is over and you said all those words to your spouse and you apologize profusely to each other 
and start to cry and look at each other's eyes and kiss like you did on the day you were married. All is well. But then you feel the weight of that guilt. You go into your bedroom, get down on your knees, and ask God to forgive you and cleanse you. You remember 1 John 1, 9 from church, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You saw it on your television. You saw it on your desk. You saw it on your refrigerator because you need it so often. And you confess your sins. But the devil says, are you even saved? You sin like that? By the way, it's not the first time you yelled at your wife or your husband, as the case may be. I'm not going to get into that thing. It's not the first time you did that. In fact, this might be the tenth time you did that this year. Right? Are you even saved? So we have this battle in our lives because we're concerned about how we live because how we live demonstrates the reality or the falsity of the faith that we have, right? But we can't transform that into if I do really good, then I'm saved by that really good. At the end of the day, that's sanctification. That's not justification. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference. And grace, when it's fully understood, is grace. The kind of grace that makes you cry. The kind of grace that humbles you. The kind of grace that, Lord, I don't even know why you chose me, that kind of grace, right? So, and the funny thing here is that, which we kind of forget, is that Abraham believed before he was circumcised. He He believed before he was a Jew, He believed, if you will, when he was a Gentile. And the reason for all that was so that we would all commonly, i.e. the whole world, know that salvation comes the same way. Amen? Now, there's something going on here that you need to know about Abraham's faith. The very thing that God promised him, says Romans 4, is that, Abraham, you're going to have a baby with Sarah. And he promised it to him 25 years before this event. Here he is 25 years later. Sarah has never had a baby. 
right? And now I believe, what is she, 80 or something? And Abraham is 99 or 100 years old at this time. I don't know about you, and I don't want to get gross or anything, but I don't know too many uh, 100-year-old guys riding in sports cars, dating girls, and having babies with girls who are 80. You? I think by that time, you simply have absolutely no interest. I was riding with a man who was 84 the other day, and he wanted to point out that he had absolutely no interest in anything sexual and hasn't in years. I said, great. It's one less thing to worry about. (laughs) But here's the Lord saying, you're going to have a kid. Wait a minute. I've been waiting for 25 years. Now I'm 100. My wife is 80. And he says, by the way, Abraham, and I'm not doing this right because he's not calling him Abraham. He's calling him Abram. He says, Abram. Abram means exalted father. He says, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to give you the promise again. And I'm going to change your name. And, and, you know, back then, names meant something. And they still do, actually. Names mean something. And so I'm going to call you Abraham, not Abram. Right? Avraham versus Avram. One means exalted father. One means father of many nations. Can you imagine Abraham going down to the senior center? Hey, hey, come on over. Let's talk. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I want to tell you something that happened to me. I, I had an encounter with God. Oh, yeah, really? Really? And he changed my name. Changed your name. Well, what is your actual name besides Abe? Oh, it's Abram. Oh, yeah, that's Hebrew for exalted father. And you only have one kid with a slave girl. And you're the exalted father? Well, he changed my name to Abraham, the father of a multitude, the father of many nations. Okay. And your wife can't have kids. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And as Abe goes to go over there and have a gavelta fish sandwich, the people at the table turned to each other and said, he's lost it. Call his family. He needs help. But despite the human impossibility of Abraham and Sarah having a child, right? Despite the fact that it hasn't happened after 25 years of waiting, despite the fact 
that the Lord renames the guy for something that hasn't happened yet, Abraham believes God. Isn't that that way with us? We know that salvation is a miracle. Everyone that's saved in this room is a miracle of grace. It's a miracle. And it happens because of God. God does it. And so, this is the faith that we're talking about. And it's not that it was perfect faith. He wavered in it, but he believed God at the end of the day. Can you imagine, once he has the child, Isaac, he then says, sacrifice this kid. But he goes and does it. Now, he's obedient because he has faith. He's not earning the faith by obedience, you see. And by the way, his wife dies and he gets remarried to a, a woman named Keturah. And they have a bunch of children. I don't know, he's like, they say he's 135, I think. He has six kids with Keturah, I believe, if I'm right, um, at 135. By the way, Viagra and Cialis were not invented back then, in case you didn't know. Footnote. True faith is fully convinced that God is able to do as he promised, to call things that are not into existence. And so there's Abraham at 99, and he gives a son to Sarah and Abraham. To believe in God's promise is the same as believing in God's person. If I promise to do something for you and you don't believe my promise, again, you're calling me a liar. You're saying that I won't do what I promised. If God promises something and we refuse to believe it, we're calling God a liar. Now, it's easy to sit here and think, well, if God came to me like he did to Abraham, I'd believe him too. Would you? The promise flew in the face of every human consideration. Again, Sarah had been barren all her life. She is post-menopausal. Abraham's 100. Abraham laughed. Okay, we're going to name your kid Isaac. He laughs. Think about it. That the Lord, in the midst of mortality and corruption, 
promises us immortality. We're covered with sins. He declares us just. His outward judgments threaten wrath. He testifies that he's propitiated to us. What then? Do we just close our eyes? No. We believe the bare word of God. Amen? You must believe the bare word of God. No matter what it looks like, believe the bare word of God. Lastly, number four, and this is kind of weird. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Yeah, I get that. But raised for our justification. What does that mean? The Bible also usually speaks in depth about the resurrection of Christ. It was impossible for death to hold him. Jesus was sinless. And if God allowed sin to hold him eternally, that would have been an injustice against Jesus. And so Christ is vindicated by the divine act of resurrection. God demonstrates the innocence of Jesus by raising him from the dead. But God did not do this as an isolated incident, for we are told repeatedly in the New Testament Jesus is the firstborn of those who are raised from the dead. We who are in Christ will participate in his resurrection. Had Jesus died and not been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins because it would demonstrate that his atonement was not acceptable to God. But it was. The effect being rightly related to God, i.e., we have peace with God now. Beloved, there are people in our world that have nothing but strife and misery. I met some this week. I can't tell you how bad their backgrounds are, what they've gone through, what they're going through, the misery and the lack of peace, the anxiety, the mental illness, if you can call it that, the sin. And you know, everybody is looking for peace. And the peace that God gives transcends all earthly peace, doesn't it? Because the war's over. The war between us and God is over. The peace treaty has been prepared and signed by God because now we're justified and we're reconciled to our holy, beautiful, perfect God of gods, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peace is not the only fruit. Everlasting life is not the only fruit. We now have access by faith into the grace which we now 
stand. Amen. As we close, let me tell you about an elderly grandmother who had never flown in an airplane, but she had to make a trip by air. Her kids and her grandkids all convinced her to fly on the plane, telling her it was safer than riding in a car. Finally, with a lot of misgivings, she got on board. When she returned safely, the family met her at the airport and said, How'd it go, Granny? Did the plane hold you up? She reluctantly agreed, yeah. But then she added, but I never put my full weight down on it. Could your faith in Jesus Christ to save you be like that? You believe in him, but you're also keeping one foot in your good works to get you into heaven? Saving faith puts all its weight on Jesus Christ in his shed blood. It's rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It revels in God's glory. And it relies on Christ's power. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we want to be those who trust in you and you alone for our salvation. We're so thankful, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith. And so, Lord, may our daily living give evidence of the fact that we do have true saving faith, we pray. And Father, help us to put our full weight and full trust in you and you alone. In Christ's name, and everybody said, Amen.